Torah with a capital T, of course, in Jewish life has always been learning itself, the very act of learning. And all of Jewish study is Torah to the rabbis of old. Uh, no matter what you're studying, it's Torah. And when they say Talmud, Torah, Keneged Kulam in the Talmud, which literally means the study of Torah is equivalent to everything, everything else you do, they don't mean just the, the five books of Moses that are contained in the Torah scroll. They mean all of the delving into thinking of, of uh, Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, theology, uh, text, all of that, no matter where we get it or the conversations that we have around issues of Jewish life and Jewish learning, all of that is Torah with a capital T. So, And um, that's what we're doing tonight. We're doing Torah with a small T and a capital T. Um, as those of you who were at the first one of these, low these many months ago, uh, know, uh, I had the, or who read my brilliant book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan, if you're listening to this and you don't have it, please, you can go and buy a year with Mordecai Kaplan. Um, I had the privilege of studying with Kaplan in, uh, in New York, 1972, uh, my first year of Benning School. Yeah. Um, and um, he had just made Aliyah that year, he and his wife, uh, Rivka, his second wife, made um, Aliyah to Israel, and uh, they lived there for a number of years, and um, I think, actually, they lived there until he broke his hip, and then he came back to the United States because he broke his hip, and I don't know why he came back to the United States, because he broke his hip, but then he came back to the United States because he broke his hip, as if they don't have doctors in Jerusalem, you know what I mean? It's like, anyway, <clears throat> but he ended up at the, uh, at the Jewish home for the aged in uh, Riverdale. That's where he spent the last couple of years of his life. Died at 102. Um, lived a rather full life. As some of you know, he, he taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary for 50-50 years um, and uh, arguably is the single most uh, influential American Jewish thinker of the 20th century. Uh, certainly influenced generations of rabbis, cantors, educators in both the Reform and Conservative movement. Um, was instrumental in creating, inspiring, and cr literally creating a whole series of institutions, including what used to be called the University of Judaism, as now called the American Jewish University, Brandeis Camp. He had a, a big hand in both of those in the early years. Um, some of you are probably here then. Some of you are like Harry. Uh, others may not. Um, and uh, he was, of course, considered the liberal wing of the conservative movement, uh, when they initially created the University of Judaism, it was really with a Kaplanian model of hoping that that would be a communal institution, not a conservative movement institution. Uh, and it kind of little, did a little of both. I mean, it's clearly a conservative institution from the conservative movements, the West Coast conservative movements, rabbinical um, uh, uh, seminary, uh, and but what really drove their, you know, to this day, very extensive communal outreach adult education program. They're sort of the best 
of that, I think, in L.A. Um, they have a vibrant uh, outreach program. If you're not on their list and haven't gotten their catalogs every year of all the courses and things they do, you should, because you should, they do amazing things. One of them is January 15th. Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin is going to be up at the American Jewish University interestingly enough, talking about his brilliant new book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan. Anyway, um, so I'm going to be doing something there. Anyway, we'll see. But um, that was his goal because Kaplan, uh, as I'm sure you've heard many times, (coughs) was not interested in creating his own movement. He did anyway, but that wasn't his goal. he, uh, He believed that his philosophy was contemporary Judaism. He believed his philosophy was uh, was uh, modern intellectual, uh, modern intellectual, rational, non-supernatural understanding of Judaism for the 20th century, and that uh, appropriately articulated, everybody would raise their hands and go, "Oh yes." And frankly, most people do raise their hand and say, "Oh yes," when you talk to them about what the principles of Reconstructionism are about, the ideas of God not as an external being that acts upon you, but a power that works through you, that you discover in the everyday miracles of life, the idea of uh, that Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, which of course he articulated mostly in, <laughs> in this brilliant book, Judaism is a Civilization, 1934. These are all Kaplan books. Visual aids. Um, Kaplan books. Judaism, Translation, Not So Random Thoughts. This was the best source for almost all of the things in my book. Where saw you quotes everywhere. The religion of ethical monotheism, questions Jews ask, basic values in Jewish religion, the future of the American Jew. All of them really whoops, are versions of trying to trip of what he wrote in Judaism as Civilization. You know, which was the understanding that that Judaism is language, literature, art, history, culture, food, music, all the things that any civilization uh, symbolizes and represents that you can find anywhere. We are a transnational civilization, obviously. We have Jews all over the world. Uh, not very many of us, but they're still all over the world. Uh, and, uh, and that what gives Jews their identity, one of his uh, seminal thinking ideas that most people... Uh, most non-orthodox people anyway um, if you talk to them we'll immediately go yeah that makes sense that's me is that what gives Jews our identity is not primarily belief but rather belonging that in the sense belonging precedes belief in many ways you would say that it's the belonging to the Jewish people that Jews identify with we're a part of this group we're part of this community we're part of this family that we really literally are tribal in that sense we're you know not just we are these tribes we are the reason that the Torah has Jacob our patriarch Abraham Isaac and Jacob who then got his name changed to Israel and then became the embodiment of the Jewish people literally he was Jacob Israel and then his sons with a couple of additions of grandsons, became the, more or less, became the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the family, right? So it was literally a family out of which, in theory, Jews have come ever since. Plus those who join by choice. Join the family. Get adopted into the family. And that instead of conversion, 
we should probably call it adoption, really, because that's what we are. We're a family, and we adopt people who want to be adopted into the family. And just like when you get adopted into the family, most of the time you change your name or you get the family, take on the family name. Happened to me <clears throat> that uh, when my biological father died and my mother remarried to my current father, who's going to be 98 December 8th, uh, my father Jack Rubin, so my name was Stephen Schneider when I was born, but my father adopted legally me and my older sister Carolyn, and so we changed our last name to Rubin, because we got adopted legally by Jack Rubin. Um, What's in a name? So, um, So when people, and that's why, today I was at a bris this morning, a brit milah of my newest cousin, um, so, is the grandson of my first cousin what? First cousin twice removed. Is that what it is? Twice removed. I never understand second cousin. What's a second cousin? When, when your first cousins are parents, then their children are second cousins. Our first cousin. Once removed is short for one generation. Ah. Well, this is one of those. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is my cousin's, my first cousin's grandson. So, uh, Julia Moss had a baby. Um, baby boy, we had a wrist today. There were th- only three rabbis there. Um, <clears throat> the Moyle, who was a rabbi, uh, very good one, actually. Uh, Shalom Denbo is his name. Great guy, really good. The baby went to sleep faster than he could cut. The baby went to sleep. It was like, boom, what? I'm out. That was it. And, uh, and they belonged to Ikar, so one of the Ikar rabbis, who was like pregnant out to here, going, I said, this is like a warm-up for you? But she was there too, and, and me. So we had this Brit Milah. And, of course, at a Brit Milah, one of the, the essence of the Brit Milah, other than the little surgical piece, so to speak, um, of, uh, of the circumcision, the milah part of the brit milah, milah is the circumcision, the brit part is the covenant. Brit is the relationship. And the, and you, you, and the brit is symbolized both by the literal act of, of giving your son over to have the circumcision, but by giving a Hebrew name, by welcoming that child into the Jewish people by declaring this along with his name, which was Sammy, Samuel, his Hebrew name, he got a Hebrew name, Shlomo. Covering all the S's. Samuel and Shlomo. So they gave me Hebrew name Shlomo, but of course he's not just Shlomo, because our Hebrew names are not just our name. Our Hebrew name is our name, the son or daughter of our parents. That's our Hebrew name. So he became Shlomo ben Akiva of Mordechai, which are their Hebrew names. No. Uh, what's her Hebrew name? <laughs> forgot already. The, uh, turned 70, forgot everything. The, um, anyway, so that, that's our Hebrew name. But the very fact that, the re- that that is how Hebrew names exist is the demonstration of what it means to be part of a family community that's not just a community of believers. It's not about believers. We welcomed him not into a community of believers. We welcomed him into the next generation of the previous generation of the previous generation of the previous generation, which is he's the son of and then the grandson of. And when they spoke, when the parents spoke, 
you know, what did they speak about? His, you know, Sammy, we want you to know that your great-grandparents on one side are Holocaust survivors, and your great-grandparents on the other side came from Morocco and left their community because the community changed. This is like so classic Jew. Their community was no longer, no longer hospitable to the Jewish community, and so they left. And here you are in 2019 being born in North America, and we would have hoped that you would no longer have to think about those kinds of things. But unfortunately, this is their whole shtick. I said, you can talk about the name? No. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And today, once again, you have to be concerned about anti-Semitism. It happens that both parents are professional Jews and work for the Jewish community, so they're like into the anti-Semitism and all the things that are going on today. But so is everybody. You know, I mean, the lack of safety in the world and school shootings and synagogue concerns and all that is everywhere. And it's not about I'm, I'm attacking someone because they believe something. People don't attack Jews because of they believe something. Some people get some Jews get attacked because they don't believe something. That's true. <clears throat> Certain things they don't believe that maybe if they did, <clears throat> they wouldn't be attacked. But but the fact of the matter is, <coughs> it's. <clears throat> It's our belongingness to that community that is our identity. And Kaplan was the one who uh, raised that up as preeminent, as the preeminent way of seeing who we are in the world at a time in the early 20th century when, in fact, there were still conversations, are Jews this, are Jews that, are Jews this? Are we a race? Are we a religion? Are we a whatever? And this, Judaism is a civilization, sort of, pretty much put an end to that. It, it became all-encompassing and, and, uh, and became self-evident. One of those things, you know, idea whose time had come, pretty much when you say that to someone, it's like, oh, yeah, yes, we have language, literature, artists, culture, food, music, blah, 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 all those things that a civilization has. Um, and uh, part of what attracts people, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about conversion, but because uh, I'm writing an article about conversion at the moment, but one of the things that in my rabbi experience is particularly attractive about Judaism to many people who choose Judaism as adults is that we're old. That That we're old. That we're thousands of years old. You know, we're still around thousands of years later. And for many people, that alone is like a hexer. Well, if you're thousands of years old, something must be okay. There must be something there worth looking into. There must be something there in ancient practices. We tend to be, people tend to be drawn, whether it's shamanic practices or whatever, to ancient practices. You know, people, in fact, a lot of PR people sell things on that basis. This is an ancient formula that we, you know, discovered in the Andes or whatever we discovered it because it's ancient, as if old is good. The older I get, the more old is good. So... That's good. So, but, but there's a draw to that. And with Judaism and with Torah and <coughs> Midrash and Talmud and, <coughs> excuse me, and all that, there is a weightiness to our ideas and our philosophy and our theology that, that um, touches people, that draws and attracts people. So that uh, Kaplan, when he started articulating his ideas about Judaism and about text, and about Torah um, could say more than 
uh, more appropriate than God revealed the Torah is to say the Torah reveal, reveals God. So, like, what did he mean by that? That's now a, an actual question. So, what does it mean to say, if I said to someone, more than God revealed the Torah, as if some supernatural being, like, dictated it to Moses, which, of course, is what it says, God told... Instead, Kaplan said, no, a more modern, appropriate understanding of that is that God is the Torah reveals God. God is revealed through Torah. How might you understand that? We find God in Torah. So Rabbi Sachs wrote, when we pray, we talk to God. All right. And when we study Torah, God God talks to us. us. Yes. Did you read that? See that last thing that got showed up this week? Anyway, yeah. If we're saying that we're not going with the God as a supernatural being. Yes. Then we must find God somewhere concrete, as in words. Yes, words and in the universe itself. Kaplan was uh, very also very influenced by early 20th century rationalism, post end of 19th century, 20th century rationalism, scientific rationalism, um, and psychology and uh, um, and understood that in the there's a reason that our ancestors in their wisdom as I often say when I'm leading services on Friday night uh, have one of the evening prayers all about the the rhythm of the universe and the stars and their heavens and their heavenly courses and that you know the sun follows the moon and the stars go in that there are things in the natural universe that we can count on that reveal God, God's presence, godliness, holiness is revealed in the fact that 100% of the time if I do this, it's going to go that way. You know, it'll always go that way. It will never go that way. Hopefully. It'll always go that way. So that kind of certainty, that rhythm, that, that exquisiteness of the universe, which is what you hear or read when you read whether it's Einstein or any of the great uh, Nobel scientists, uh, so many of them talk about the sort of infinite mind of the universe in some way because they, the smarter they are, the more, the more they recognize the, the mystery of uh, the wonder of, of the universe um, and how remarkably it's put together. So we in Jewish liturgy and Jewish prayer, and Kaplan certainly focused on this often, do the exact same thing, you know. I mean, I, I talk about it often. We get up in the morning, we say this blessing about our bodies, you know. Nekavim, nekavim, chalulim, chalulim, galui v'yadu alifneki seikavodecha. We say that our bodies are filled with holes and orifices, that if the ones that were supposed to be closed were opened, or the ones that were supposed to be opened were closed, it'd be impossible to exist. You know, it's this wonderful graphic prayer that is supposed to, every day allow us a moment of focusing on this miracle that I cut myself and I heal myself. You know, I'm planning on healing myself from all kinds of things. So cut yourself and you heal yourself. And, and most people, 99.9% of the people in the world, do that. Some unfortunate rare people don't. But basically we are self-healing um, organisms, right? We heal ourselves all the time, constantly. And we don't no one's sitting there going heart pump, 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 pump. You know, your heart's doing what it's doing. Or blood move through, or white corpuscles go here, or any, we don't do any of those things. Our body does that all by itself. Goes to all these organs that we 
hopefully take care of themselves. Yeah. Did uh, Kaplan believe that God, however he defined it, hmm? existed before there were human beings and would exist when there are no more human beings? Because ah. I've heard people describe Kaplan as God is in us, as if God is only in us. Yeah. Right. People people do. People talk about, you know, is it if the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it is to make any sound. You know, if, if or sound only in here. Is there such a thing as sound? Well, uh, no, I think Kaplan, my understanding of what of Kaplan is uh, is yes to the first part, which is which is that uh, that the uh, Godliness, what uh, Schulweis would refer to as godliness in the world, uh, is in the universe, not just in human beings. Before man and without man. Without the creation of the, the Big Bang, let's assume there was a Big Bang. Why not? The Big Bang is God's presence. The coming together of, of uh, atoms to form a nucleus is, God's, is, a, is a representation of God's presence. The emergence of... Uh, slime out of the ocean and turned into me is God's presence. You know, all that, that the stars and the heavens are God's presence. You don't need human beings. Yes, here in this world, what matters to us is the human being's reflection of God. You know, it's like, that's what matters to me because I'm a human being. And so what I care about is civilization and society and relationships and justice and compassion, the ideas that animate human life. So that's, that's the meaningful part of godliness and God's presence in this world. But God's, what Kaplan would say, God is that uh, energy of the universe. He would be an energy healer. That energy in the universe, uh, all energy in the universe is a reflection of God and God's presence. Um, but for us, what matters is that these are God's hands and these are God's eyes because this is where we find meaning is in civilization, in community, in fact, in belonging, in belongingness, in our relationships, in relationships. What the most important things in life are relationships. But what is, can, you, can you talk about the difference between humanism and... I'm, I've heard some people when they talk about reconstructionism as if it's humanism, right? Well, it's kind of but spiritual it's humanism. It's not but the but same. It's different. Yes, not the same. Well, you know, I don't know anyone want to posit what they understand humanism to be. Humanism is what would you say secular, humanism is? For what? Hmm? It's secular. Secular. Yes, this is deeply religious. <laughs> You know, Reconstructionism, Kaplan was, I mean, you know, he was a, he acted like he was an Orthodox Jew his whole life, because uh, that's how he was raised, and, and he, so he practiced, his practice was very traditional, um, because he believed that, that the practice of Judaism, the rituals of Judaism, what he called the sancta, really, of Judaism, are the physical acts that keep us together as a community. So this morning I was here with ECC, with the early childhood um, singing with the little kids, uh, which I'm now doing again because I missed it and said time to start singing again. So I'm singing with the kids and we decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to come every month and do a, a sort of Havdalah thing with them, even though 
whatever, on Monday. On Monday at 10 in the morning, which is actually good traditional. Monday morning. Well, every Friday morning they have, they have Shabbat here. Nine in the morning they do Shabbat. So I'm coming at 10 and doing Abdallah on Monday. So we have a thing here. We have the Abdallah stuff out. And I, and I sing some songs. And what do they know? They don't care about it. They don't have any time. There's no time when you're three and four. It doesn't make any difference. So... So we had we had a Havdalah set here, and I was singing a couple of songs, and uh, singing uh, wrote some Havdalah related lyrics to a couple of my songs, a sing along song, and something else. Um, did a short version of you know instead of Eliyahu Hanavi, I just just took the Eliyahu Hanavi and then wrote some English, and then then uh, Miriam Hanavi, and then wrote some English, and so they could sing, little kids. Um, and we're doing a braided candle and talking about connection and community and lights and whatever and uh, blessing over spices and blessing over I can't remember why I'm telling you this now the um, uh, ritual Sancta. I know why Sancta. Sancta yes because we want and why do we teach sort of basic Jewish life skills to kids in our religious education uh, to, you know that on Friday night we light candles and we have challah and we say these words and these are blessings or whatever because it's what cements community together that is that you go somewhere and many of you have done it most of you have done it gone some other country and showed up at a service somewhere in some synagogue that's speaking some other language and then some Hebrew because it's a Jewish service and they'll go Shema Yisrael Adonai and you go yeah I know that doesn't matter what language, doesn't matter what community, if there's something you know that's your Jewishness and you see it echoed in Morocco or in Paris or in England or in Germany or any other country, you're home with your people, whatever that means, you're home with your community. It's like you've discovered some long-lost cousins. That's how Jews essentially relate to other Jews around the world. It's like they're relatives that we didn't know yet. You know, relatives. Not like, we're going to check, do you believe the same thing I believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Torah, Israel? It's not about that. It's about being a part of the same family. And the family rituals, just like Thanksgiving's coming up, you know, people eat whatever they eat on Thanksgiving, and different families have different traditions. Passover comes and people have different traditions. You know, but when most, since most Jews, the one holiday that Jews celebrate more than any other is Passover, some version of Passover, some version of a Seder, even if they just eat matzah during the, during the week, they do something to acknowledge Passover more than any other holiday because it's so tactical. Tactile. Tactical. It's, it's very tactical, actually. But because it's so tactile, so physical, you've got this weird food that you eat. And, you know, and the Seder where you do stuff, but just the food itself, matzah alone. Which, of course... You know, Gelson's and Vons and every other thing put out for every Jewish holiday. Scafilta fish and matzah shows up because it's a Jewish holiday coming, whatever it is. Oh, it's Yom Kippur. We'll put out the matzah and gefilte fish. So, anyway, matzah balls for Passover or Yom Kippur. Anyway, but it's because that's what, what he called sancta for a reason because it's sacred acts that connect us to community. That's what it is. It's kind of like Christmas trees for everybody who isn't Jewish, even though some Jews have Christmas trees. Christmas trees go up. You know, they're already up now, right? They're all over the place. Christmas trees are all over the place. Um, beautiful one always, and, you know, that 
Caruso does this humongous Christmas tree uh, in the village, and, and I've, I've been seeing lights that people already have up already with Christmas trees. You get an instant association. Christmas comes up. Christmas is here. No matter who you are, if you grow up in America, you have whatever associations you have. Uh, and for most people in America, it's a positive association. Most people in America, it's all the best time of the year, the most joyous time of the year, the most loving time of the year, the most peace on earth, goodwill to everybody time of the year. You know, I personally think it would be nice if we had Christmas 10 months out of the year because people are nicer. People are better. People show up. People volunteer. People contribute. People do stuff in the Christmas spirit because they do that. It'd be nice if they had the Christmas spirit all year round. You know, why not? In any event, the point is that rituals have power. Symbols, Jewish ritual, religious symbols have power and the power is our association together with them, both from how we grew up and what we associate with them. So what links us as people is sort of ritual. Humanism is secular in that it's sort of the elevation of the human um, period as sort of the ultimate arbiter of of everything. Um, uh, Reconstructionism isn't about that. It's about about finding a sense of the sacred in the everyday and feeling compelled by your religion, that is your Jewishness, to get involved in the world in bringing justice and compassion and Jewish values to the world. Kaplan was a very strong advocate of doing, the doingness of Judaism, not just the rituals, but ethical. One of these is called the religion of ethical... Here we go. Now they'll all fall down, but... The Religion of Ethical Nationhood was one of his books. Not just like we're an ethical nationhood. What mattered, Judaism's contribution to world peace. That, that's, that's the subtitle of this book. A, a call for ethical humanism by one of the most influential Jewish thinkers of our time. That's also what he said. So, But it's about Judaism that's just ritual is not Judaism. For Kaplan, it's Judaism whose ritual. It's the it's the classic uh, Talmudic question: What's more important, you know, study or action? You know, Talmud or Masa is the rabbinic language, and Rabbi Akiva, I think, is the one who said study that leads to action because that's how Jews act, answer everything. Ha, gotcha. You know, what's more important, study or action? Both of them are equally important. So it's study that leads to action reading the holiness code in the Torah that says you know, don't keep the wages of a hired servant overnight. One of the examples I use in the book somewhere. Um, Maybe in the Kedoshim one actually, I don't remember. But you know, because I grew up with my mother telling me that all the time. You know, and I, that's one of the stories I tell because each of my commentaries has, uh, you know, passages from the Torah and then some explanation and then some of Kaplan's insights and then a story from my own life or my own rabbinic life or some of your lives are in there Um, and um, to illustrate that so you know I grew up with a mother who literally said the Torah teaches us because she should have been a rabbi but you know they weren't women rabbis in those days Um, the Torah teaches us that you know why is it that when Arnita the woman who came once a week to clean our house when she comes I always have money there for her I don't say I'll pay you gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today um why is that? Because the Torah says you don't keep the wages of a hired servant overnight. 
Why, she would ask, and the answer is always because the minute she finishes work, it's her money. It's not your money anymore. If you keep it and say, I'll pay you tomorrow, you're borrowing her money. What? You're going to ask her, can I borrow your money until tomorrow? Because I, you know, forgot. But whatever, it's her money. You're stealing her money, you're borrowing her money. It's her money. You know, so it, as a kid, when I grew up, I linked, my mother always said, the Torah teaches that. So I had lots of Torah lessons in my family, whether I knew, and some I didn't know were Torah lessons, but they were Torah lessons anyway, because um, my parents were very synagogue-involved people and did Torah study, and my mother was president of Jewish Family Service in Santa Monica, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's what I grew up with. Kaplan understood this is what it means to be a functioning Jew. It means getting involved in the ethical challenges of the world. And that if you... I have that effect on people. That I drive them out of the room. If you um, only go to synagogue to pray, you're only half of a Jew, of a fully functioning Jew. Which is why when he created synagogues, he was the guy who created sort of the full-service synagogue. He was the one, the first person, he had his first shul with a pool, you know, in New York. He created a synagogue that was also a community center because he understood instead of a synagogue as a Beit Filah alone, a house of worship, or Beit Midrash, a house of study, it was supposed to be a Beit Knesset too, which is a house of gathering together. It was supposed to be a full-service spiritual community center. Then a synagogue would really matter. If you did, and which is what modern synagogues are, except for some Orthodox shuls, some, because Orthodox shuls are also this way, most of them, um, you know, where people just go to pray, just go to do services and go pick up the prayer book and try to get from page one to twenty, and then you're done. You know, that's not what synagogue life's about. You look at our, look at KI's website, or look at what comes in the mail every week or the email every week. It's like, who's doing all this stuff? You know, there's so many things. Yeah, Harry. Oh, okay. You're, have your hand? Okay. Did, did Kaplan have a sense of obligation? Not, not that he was, that we as Jews are obligated, or was it all. Ah, you mean like mitzvah? Like the, mitzvah, the idea yeah, of mitzvah? Yeah. Without a commander, how do you feel talking, commanded? Yeah, you were, you were talking about yes. your mother, and, and she taught you it was in the Torah, and that's yes. like. Why do you do it? Well, because. Right. Because we do and we do that. Right. But was there a sense of a higher, I hate to say higher calling, small c, not capital C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or obligation? Yes. Yes. No obligation. Yes, but, but he, f- not, not because God said so, but because the Jewish people said so. For Kaplan, being a part of a community inherently <coughs> came with, uh, with responsibilities to the community. Bless you, to the community. That that part of the you know the traditional notion is uh, there's this traditional idea of uh, all mitzvot is the Hebrew the not old but old the Hebrew word meaning yoke the yoke of the mitzvot as if there's a yoke around you know like the you like with oxen that's what you put yeah. yoke yokes on oxen you know you put a yoke on them to go well so that. The rabbinic, rabbinic language in the Talmud, um, old mitzvot is one of those. They're 
popular phrases, the yoke of the mitzvah, of, of mitzvot, the obligation, the yoke of obligation, that you're obligated <clears throat> to do certain things, um, to say certain prayers, to act in a certain way. And that's, of course, all stems starting from the Torah and then each layer of rabbinic commentary after that down to today. The oblig- in a traditional sense, it was because God said so. God gave these commandments you know, the 10, and then the next 50, and then 613 of them all together. And we had 613 mitzvot that we are obligated to do because a supernatural being who created the world picked us and said, tag, you're it, here's your mitzvot, do them. I mean, it's, it's kind of that simple on the one hand. In the modern world, <coughs> in the Kaplanian 20th century, where people no longer felt that sense of there's some you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of theology, that there's God looking down and, you know, going to zap you if you eat a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich or something. Um, The question is, where does a sense of obligation come from? Kaplan felt very strongly that the, the weight of Jewish civilization itself was a source of obligation and responsibility. If you were going to be a part of the belongingness, you can opt out. We're in a we're in a world in the 20th century already where you can opt out. You can become Catholic. You can become whatever. You can become Muslim. You can do whatever you want. You can become just nothing. You can say I'm nothing. You know the nuns that are the largest growing religious population in America. N O N E. Those nuns. The N O N E S that answer the 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 you know census surveys. When they check religion, they check none. That's the fastest growing religious population in America once identify it as nothing in particular. Um, But he felt that Jews have an obligation because we're Jewish, because of the handing down of what what the Brit today, the the Bris today, that sense of which they laid all this heavy anti-Semitism on this poor little baby. (laughs) You're going to grow up with all these people hating you. No, they didn't say that. But, you know, it's like, keep your eyes open, kid. You know, things happen. That's... I had to do 10 minutes after that on no, his, his name is Shlomo, which comes from Shalom, which is peace and wholeness, and what he's going to bring into the world is peace and wholeness. Anyway, because, um, you know, I want to be up, not down. Um, but, but there is a sense of, when I was, um, I love how my mind works, <laughs> goes to weird places. When I was uh, first a rabbi, actually, I wasn't even a rabbi. I was a, in rabbinic school at my first pulpit as a rabbinic student. Because when you're in rabbinic school, you you get assigned, you get to go out and have biweekly or monthly pulpits of places that can't afford a rabbi. And so they have you know students from the rabbinic schools that go out do services for them and things like that. So uh, actually, my first one was in Barstow. It was a monthly congregation in Barstow. I got to go out with their little cover. That was fun. And then I had a bi-weekly in, um, in San Jose. There was an emerging congregation. I was there every other week as a rabbi when I was in rabbinic school. Um, and I think it was in San Jose, actually. Uh, and I was giving a talk about high holidays to the adult education class. And somebody, I remember, I've been a rabbi since 1976. What's that, 43 years? 43 years. Five years of rabbinic school before that. So I was like in my 
second year, my third year of rabbinic school. So that's a lot of time away, but I, I mean, I can't, I re, but I remember this. Anyway, so somebody raised their hand and said, asked me, do you fast on Yom Kippur? And I said, yes, I fast on Yom Kippur. And so they asked, why do you fast on Yom Kippur? This is all uh, Bert's question of, to, you know, why do you fast on Yom Kippur? And I remember, because I like my answer, I remember to this day that my answer without thinking, my automatic response was, because that's what Jews do on Yom Kippur. <laughs> and then I thought about what I'd said after I said, that's because that's what Jews do on Yom Kippur, is they fast. And I realized, yeah, that is why I did it. I didn't do it because I, you know, someone was watching although my mother was watching, but <laughs> my mother's always watching. Someone's watching or because, you know, whatever, because it was written somewhere that I had to or because God said so, certainly I didn't do that. I did it because, for me, Jews fast on Yom Kippur. So I fast on Yom Kippur. And in so doing, it's my statement of belongingness to the people by that. You know, it's one of many. I don't have to declare it to everybody, but clearly, internally, that... You know, it's when I do that, it's me saying, standing up or punching. Like I always think of people who only come to do anything Jewish on high holidays. They come to Yom Kippur services or something. It's kind of like they punch, they're punching their Jewish time clock, right? They're coming in for the year and going, I'm here, here. You know, they go, they show up in class and the teacher calls roll. They come to high holidays, God called roll, but really the Jewish people called roll and they went present. And then they don't have to be there the rest of the year because they're present already. And you can skip out and do whatever you do. But, you know, while the teacher's lecturing or whatever, you skip out the back door. Um, in any event, people, people have different ways of saying present. Or in the classic uh, prophetic voice, hineni, which is what the prophets answered God. God said, I need to send someone. Then the prophet said, hineni, which means here I am. It's like Present. That's the prophetic way of saying present. I showed up. We show up, right? Abraham said that. Abraham said that. Yes, started with Abraham, and all the prophets say the same thing. Hineni, I'm here. Hineni, uh, Isaiah, something, Jeremiah said, Hineni, Shalacheni. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me to God. You know, I don't know how many of us hear God's voice telling us to do things. Um, Some people do. You know, hear, get a calling to things what they call a calling. Uh, Certainly in the Christian ministry, it's referred to as a calling. People have asked me, because I do lots of interfaith here and other places, uh, you know, did I have a calling to become a rabbi? And I would say yes. And I do say yes. I was felt called to do this work after I was doing it. I was already doing it, and I got the call. It was kind of delayed because, you know, <laughs> my phones don't work that well. But, you know, it was kind of a delayed call. I was already being a rabbi when I realized that what I was doing was my calling. You know, another so story. You did it first and then you heard? Yeah. I, that sounds... Yeah, yes. Something like that. It sounds like maybe you weren't quite so sure at the beginning. 
Well, you know, I went to rabbinical school to get out of Vietnam, so that was like how I started this whole journey was I was being drafted to Vietnam and thought this is a really bad idea to go to Vietnam and kill people or get killed or whatever. I was not, I was, you know, marching in anti-war demonstrations in college and things like that. And then I was being drafted and I was 1A and I got a 77 for my lottery number, which was not a good number because it was a guaranteed to be drafted number. In fact, I was in Israel when I got that because that, that was my junior year of college. I pulled the number, which was 77. So, uh, you know, I was in a panic and whatever and thought, rabbinic school. Because um, I just come off of a year in Israel studying at the Hebrew University, studying Kaplan, as a matter of fact, studying Kaplan and studying all Judaic study stuff, which I liked. So I thought, okay, I could go to rabbinic school and study, keep doing stu- the study. I didn't think about being a rabbi. I really just thought about education and study and and I had n- never thought I would go into a congregation. It seemed like the stupidest job in the world. Insane. Who would want to do that 24-7? All these people are your bosses. It's like a horrible, horrible job. Ridiculous. And, uh, but I was interested in education. I got a master's in education at USC. And I was, that was my, that's how I started anyway. And when I was first ordained in New York, that's what I did. I worked in the National Office of the Reform Movement as the National Associate Director of Education for the Reform Movement for four years. Um, but then I didn't like the weather, so I had to come back to California. And the only way I could get back to California was to take a job in a synagogue. So I took a job at Temple Judea as the associate rabbi there for a couple of years and figured that would get me back to California. And then I'd figure out what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, um, never sort of left congregational life because suddenly while I was doing it, it was like, oh, this is amazing. What an amazing privilege. So, you know, then I felt the call after I was doing it. I've been doing it for five years already. Um, but, you know, the Talmud, in its wisdom, one of my favorite Talmudic phrases is, uh, in its sexist male language, was, a man is led by the way he wishes to follow. Love that phrase. A man is led by the way he wishes to follow. So, you know... You know, we, we, every every choice of A means not B, right? And then you then that sets up a whole other series of things that sets up a whole other series of choices that sets up another whole series. Suddenly you're over here and you started over there. You go, how did I get here? You know, by your choices you got there. You know, you didn't just fall and land somewhere. By your choices. By my choices, as I said, starting with my mother should have been the rabbi. By my choices, I end up in congregational life and studying Kaplan. I studied Kaplan literally before I met him in my junior year of college at the Hebrew University. And then my first year of school, I had that amazing opportunity to literally sit at his feet and study with him in Jerusalem in his apartment um, with the uh, students from JTS and students from the Hebrew Union College where I was going at the time. Um, what was he like? Scary, big. <laughs> Blustery. He's he was he was ninety one. He was ninety one at the time. Hadn't lost any of his scariness. Big guy, uh, you know, very demanding, booming voice. Uh, and I was, you know, my first year of rabbinic student. I didn't know anything. Uh, I, I know a little I know now, so a little on then, you know. And we were sitting at his feet, and he was in his apartment, and you know, you, I tell you, he would like suddenly turn to you and go. What did Rabbi Akiva say? And I think, well, you know, I wouldn't. So, um, but at the same time, then after he intimidated everybody, he would talk about Jewish life and uh, theology and vision and 
uh, it was he was a genius I mean you know he was one of the Gidole Hador one of the greats of his generation when you run into people like that you know you you allow them some quirks <clears throat> and whatever because uh, he was I mean he did a lot of stuff in his life created a lot of things and a lot of institutions grew out of his thinking <clears throat> the whole Jewish community center movement grew out of Kaplan's ideas and thinking all Jewish federations really grew out of Kaplan's idea. In fact, Kaplan had this this whole idea of the organic Jewish community. That you know, he believed that. In fact, if you look at this principles of Reconstructionism, it says Judaism is evolving religious civilization. Judaism, or that which has united the successive generations of Jews into one people is not only a religion, it's an evolving religious civilization. In the course of its evolution, Judaism has passed through three distinct stages, each reflecting the conditions under which it functioned. Number two is, during those stages, the Jews constituted a people apart. Now, the Jewish people, like every other, must learn to live both in its own historic civilization and in the civilization of its environment. He understood that we live in multiple civilizations at the same time. He used to talk about two, but really it's multiple, but we would live, we live in the Jewish civilization and the American civilization simultaneously. That will usher in the democratic stage, that was his new stage, during which, because he thought we were now in the 20th century and we were all going to become democratic, during which the reconstruction of the Jewish people, the revitalization of its religion, and the replenishment of its culture will be achieved because he thought that in the modern world, instead of rabbis being the authority, seen as authority figures that would be in charge of Jewish communities, the Jewish community would now be more democratic. It would vote, it would literally elect, the community as a whole would elect its communal leaders, the community as a whole, not individual synagogues of competing people, would provide for the members of its community whatever they wanted, whatever they needed. Diversity of, of uh, religious services, different kinds of education, different kinds of music, art, literature, all the things that would go into Jewish life would not be this little group over here and that little group over there and this synagogue over here and different organizations competing for the same dollars and the same everything. He, his vision was what he called the organic Jewish community, that the community as a whole would get together, elect its own leaders, appoint rabbis, hire rabbis from the community and educators and cantors and you know, all those things to provide the services that the community would lead with as much diversity as the community asked for. You know, some people just wanted to have you know, meditating services, somebody would lead that. Some community just wanted to have arts services, somebody would lead that. You know? So that was his vision. It didn't quite happen the way he envisioned it, but there are pieces of it around. You know, there are Certainly now, in today's world, we have so many trans-denominational individual groups out there that aren't affiliated with a particular union. Yeah? So, we always say, like, okay, we have our own sort of brand yeah. flavor yes. of reconstruction. Yes, we do. Which sounds a lot like what we wanted. I thought we were very authentic. Right. So, so the whole idea of a movement was not what we were No, no, not at all. So, so He just thought he was, gonna, he was teaching modern... Jewish life. This is what everybody would do. So, so is the whole idea of 
a reconstructionist institution yes. sort of against basically what he did. Well, he ultimately, I mean, his, he ultimately did put the mezuzah on the door of the Reconstruction Rabbinical College. <laughs> you know, How old was he? One of these pictures. He was like, uh, well, he retired after 50 years at uh, JTS, and then they started, and only then did they, oh, here's the one, with the nail and the hammer. He wouldn't have let him start a rabbinic school until he retired from JTS, because he was on the faculty of JTS. You know, it's like I got invited um, several times to be first on the board of the new rabbinical school in L.A. called the Academy of Jewish Religion. Academy of Jewish Religion started rabbinical doing well, I think, here in L.A. Um, so when they were forming, they taught, we taught different rabbis. They asked me if I would be one of the people on the board, and I declined. I said, no, I can't do that. I'm on the board of the Reconstruction Rabbinical College. I can't go and start another rabbinical school somewhere. I'm, on, I'm already on a rabbinical college's board. Uh, in fact, uh, they asked me if I was interested in becoming the president of the, not, not too long ago, after I retired from this. I got a call because they were in between presidents and they wanted to know if, and Marlene Cantor was chairman of the board. Uh, chairperson of the board over there called me up and said, will you be interested? We're looking for a president of our college. No. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, anyway, um, I don't like fundraising as it is, but, you know, imagine. But wasn't um, he the rabbi at, um, in New York? Yes. I mean, he was a rabbi of... Of a big congregation. Yeah, he was a rabbi of several. He, was, he started uh, um, the congregation that still exists today, the, right, um, in New York. Uh, the SAJ, the Society... The advancement of Judaism, um, and um, and when he, oh, I don't have it here. When you look at the material they published when he first became rabbi, it doesn't say Mordecai Kaplan rabbi. It says Mordecai Ka- M. Kaplan leader. Mm-hmm. You know that was his title was leader, because he was very he was egalitarian in that sense. On the other hand, he, he was very dogmatic, and everybody did what he wanted. So you know when you talk, when you, if you read some of the proceedings of, of the committee that formed, wrote the first edited the first Reconstructions prayer book like my family we used the Reconstructions Haggadah on Passover, we, the old version of the Reconstructions Haggadah the, 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 yeah, the light blue one from 1948 or whatever, right which we still use to this day, it's great it's, language is precious um, and unfortunately still relates to today, oppression and labor and all this stuff, anyway um, but you know there's a committee, Kaplan and Eugene Cohn and a bunch of people who wrote this, uh, edited that, and edited the first Reconstructionist prayer book. And, but if you read some of their descriptions of the process, you know, it was, we would argue about this, that, and the other, and then we would do whatever Kaplan wanted us to do. You know, <laughs> in the end, it was like, because he was more like Kaplan, you know, it was sort of like, uh, okay, we'll do it your way. You know, and just, just by very virtue of the power of personality. And yeah, wait, yeah. Yes. Did it, it, um, it sounds like he still lived a very traditional life. Yes. In, in his practice. Was not yes. Involved. And so you wonder what exactly ah. was the evolution that you could live in both? Yes. It seems like Jew, Judaism is evolving now. Yes. America and Judaism, but the Judaism has its own story too. Good, good, good point. 
and question that's behind that point. <clears throat> Namely, you know, Kaplan grew up uh, in a very orthodox home. His father was, he was born in Lithuania, he was brought here because his father was asked to be the head of the, the Av Beit Din, the head of the Beit Din, the rabbinical court, orthodox rabbinical court in New York. So that's why they moved here. So they moved here, he, uh, but his father was also an enlightened orthodox rabbi, sent him to secular school and as well as you know, learning Jewish stuff. He didn't just go to yeshiva somewhere. He studied and got a degree at Columbia and got all this other stuff. He's a smart guy. Um, and his entire life, he continued the same practice, religious practice, that he had as growing up with. The same, you know, prayers and the same putting on tefillin and the same diet and the same everything that, that he grew up with, that, that, that for him was his way of living Judaism. Um, but his brain was way somewhere else than an orthodox mind that said, God said so-and-so, so we do so-and-so. And in fact, it was that clash of the two civilizations, of the Jewish civilization and modern early 20th century intellectual civilization that he was studying, and writers and thinkers and philosophers that spawned a reconstructionist thought in the first place for him to go, you know what, this traditional supernatural God thing, I can't really buy that. You know, it just doesn't jibe with my modern sense, understanding of how the universe works, that there's some supernatural being looking down and making decisions about you know, whether I live or die today or whether I get cancer or I don't or, you know, and if I just pray the right prayers, then God will maybe heal me, but, you know, this guy won't get healed because he didn't pray the right prayers or, uh, so he didn't believe that, he wouldn't accept that intellectually so, and therefore all kinds of things followed in terms of his evolution of his thought like the rejection of chosenness a you know, big aspect of Reconstructionist thought is the rejection of the idea of exclusive chosenness of the Jewish people. That is, that God chose us from among all people and everybody, whatever. And therefore, we're the chosen people. Um, and gave us this, and therefore we should follow this because we're chosen. Um, he obviously thought, if there's no supernatural God to choose, you can't be chosen. There's nobody choosing. So he did understand that we were choosing people, that we had chosen as a people this identity, this mythology, spiritual mythology. We had written, somebody wrote the Torah after all. Well, some bodies wrote the Torah. Clearly more than one person wrote the Torah. You know, it's like a lot of different stories edited together. Somebody edited it. There's, you know, there's different ver- different two different versions of the creation story, different versions of Noah and the flood, different, you know, when you read it critically, you go, wait a minute, were there two or were there seven? Were there this, were there that? You know, and, and, and allegedly Moses wrote the Torah, God dictated it, but then it's talking about after Moses dying, and, you know, it's like, ah, that doesn't work. So, you know, um, and the later rabbinic commentator said, don't ask, basically. <laughs> yes, but don't ask. You know, because, uh, don't ask. Well, Kaplan asked and said, wait, it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. You know, we have brains. God gave us these brains, so to speak, to be rational. So, what does my rational mind say? My rational mind says, Jews are Jewish because of our 
tribalness, our history, and all that we have evolved and created over the thousands of years of our wanderings around the world, what we have written, what we have taught to each other, the, the rituals that we created. Somebody made all this stuff up. I'm telling that to people all the time. They're getting married. Well, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Do I, have? I said, well, somebody made all this stuff up at some point. Every one of these things, you don't have to do anything. You can choose what you want, which you want to keep in your own particular wedding. Here's why we do it. Here's what it's like. But, you know, where did some supernatural being say, you should light candles on Friday night, this week at 6.02, and next week at 5.58? Which, you know, if you look at the schedule, it'll... There's no supernatural being who said that, for sure. You know, or you should bless this wine, you should say these words, and you should say them at this occasion and that occasion, and for Havdalah, you should say it before every... There's some supernatural being that said that. Human Jewish community, we invented that. We created these rituals. You know, you pick up the Talmud, and you get to the section that talks about Hanukkah, and it's the, the rabbis ask... My Hanukkah? What's Hanukkah? <laughs> Literally, what's Hanukkah? Why do we light candles for eight nights? What do you mean, why? The rabbis and the Talmud are asking, why do we light candles for eight nights? They didn't know? Didn't God say so? And then they come up with all these stories of why we light candles for eight nights. Well, because of this, well, because of that, or well, because of that. And they have several stories of why we light candles. Because when Solomon dedicated the temple, they celebrated for eight days. So we are, when Hanukkah was a rededication, Hanukkah means rededication. We rededicated the temple in Jerusalem after we kicked out all those Syrian Greeks who tried to, you know, Antiochus and all that stuff. So we imitated Solomon and we'd celebrate for eight days. Or whatever. Or, oh, there was this little thing of oil that could only last for one night, but... Wonder of wonder and miracle of miracles. Miraculously, it lasts for eight nights, and that's why. And that's the story we tell. And that's the story we remember. Because who cared about Solomon in the temple anyway? But, you know, that's the story because it's a better story, first of all. And also, because it's a much safer story to tell when you are a minority in a majority culture rather than touting. We celebrate Hanukkah because... Jews are revolutionaries and we're going to kick out all the oppressors who try to oppress us. Oh, like whoever is oppressing us right now in whatever country we're living in. No, no. It's all about God and miracles and light. Who's going to complain about that? A little thing of oil. What's Hanukkah about a little thing of oil? So it's safer. In any event, the point is we invented it. We made it all up. Every religion, somebody made it up at some point in time. Didn't, Didn't drop from it. Or you believe it dropped from heaven. Every religion. God dictated this. God gave the Torah. God gave the Koran. Because when Muhammad flew up to the heavens from Jerusalem and blah, and then dictated the Koran and he got it in a dream. Or however the Gospels got written. Or however the Bhagavad Gita got written. Or that some kind of revelation, divine revelation from some supernatural being or whatever. That's one version, and every, most religions have some version of that to give them credibility and authenticity, right? God said so. The power that created the universe chose us. What could be cooler than that? Chose us from all the people, our little teeny little group of people who are Jews running around the Middle East. You know, picked us and said, tag, you're it. And here's the Torah, and here's what you're supposed to do. That's pretty cool. So, 
If you have issues with self-esteem, what can be better than being chosen by God, for God's sake? You know, and everyone's beating the crap out of you in every country and kicking you out of every country. I know, but God chose us. You know, and you feel a little better. But in any event, so Kaplan, Kaplan, his personal practice may have been, but he also understood that that was by choice, not by obligation of the divine who said this is what you have to do which was his orthodox upbringing in a sense that this is what you could, to be a good Jew the point is if you're a boy you show up and you daven this for that and you put on tefillin because that's what boys do because God said so because this is the mitzvah because God's a commander so it was an intellectual evolution of saying no we get to choose we choose and I may want to choose do I want to be kosher or not do I want to keep these laws or not well if I do, I choose because it connects me to Jewish sancta. Because why? Because Jews have this whole kashrut thing that goes back thousands of years. And, then, and so when I make a choice that's, that I'm thinking of in terms of the category of kosher food, I am by the very act of eating connecting myself to the belongingness of the people. Which is very different than, of course I'm keeping kosher because it's a mitzvah God, that God commanded. Yes. All this. Don't you like to pass these out and never do it? Yeah. All this sounds so obvious. Yes, I know. To us in 2019. Right. It's not unusual at all. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the rest of the Jewish world was like at the time that Kaplan was putting this forth? Because it doesn't seem. Because we know his first prayer book was burned. He 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 was one of the only people in the 20th century that we know who who was put into harem, you know, was put into. uh, what do you call that in English? Uh, excommunication. Thank you. Well, he was excommunicated from, from by the Orthodox. Excommunicated from the Jewish from Judaism, like uh, Spinoza. Wasn't he the one that got excommunicated? Right, Spinoza. He was like the Spinoza of the 20th century. The Orthodox kicked him out of Judaism. So you, you're not. You can't be Jewish. And they burned the prayer book. His first prayer book, because. Uh, you know who were the Jews of the early part of the 20th century? Where did we come from? You know, all this mass infusion of Jews from Eastern Europe. You know, old world Jews from Eastern Europe. So he was born in Lithuania. Came here. Reformed existed. Now, reform started in Germany in the 19th century. There was a reform movement here, but and Kaplan rejected the reform movement because he thought it threw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. That it was threw everything out. It rejected. It rejected. By rejecting a supernatural sort of God in the in that in a sense, they then said, oh, "So we don't have to do any of this stuff." Then, then all we really are going to be is ethical monotheism. We'll we'll just be the only thing that matters is ethics, at all. Um, in the early reform movement, if you look at the reform movement, uh, their first platform in. Um, uh, from Germany and the first one here in America, the Pittsburgh platform and the Columbus platform that, that the Reform rabbis put together, it was so uh, Jewishly secular. I mean, I grew up in the Reform synagogue, at w- which was at the time called Beth Shalom. It's not Beth Shalom, but Beth Shalom in Santa Monica, on 19th in California. Uh, we didn't have kippot. There were no yarmulkes in the room in the building. You know, it was not. It was. It, it was a cl- sort of classical Reform. Synagogue in many ways. So my bar mitzvah was on a Friday night, in fact, um, if I recall. 
and uh, I didn't encounter a lobster, did you? I, I, no, we didn't, but I didn't encounter a kippah until I went to Israel, in fact, my junior year of college, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got to wear these things if you're a boy going into any synagogue or anything that once was a synagogue or might be a synagogue. So I started carrying one around um, to do that. But, uh, you know, because they sort of threw out so much of Jewish ritual that then was also the richness of so much of Jewish tradition. Um, so he rejected that. Uh, but the, the Jewish world was um, a combination at the time of of what was normative Judaism was sort of orthodoxy, old world orthodoxy, then, except for those who were reform, who were then very, very different in, in terms of from traditional Judaism, and rejectionists altogether, secular, everybody who came here and t- dropped their Judaism, their behaviors of Judaism, because they're in the new world. You know, it's like, I'm, what does it mean to become an American? It means I'm an American. So I don't want to be, have any trappings of the old world with me, so you drop it all together. So there was all of that. And lots of people who grew up without anything, they're in the nuns already, because their immigrant parents wanted them to be American. So to be American meant not to be Jewish, not to be anything from the old world. And so there were a lot of those. And, you know, Kaplan was an intellectual. I tell you. In any event, so... God, what's wrong with me? Um, anyway, so this was this was the sort of founding principle. Of this thing that I passed out about the principle of reconstructionism, also of of the founding of his synagogue, the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, the SAJ in in New York. Th- these were what he believed uh, Judaism should be: unity and diversity. Unity should transcend the diversity among Jews which this is like from 1920s, from the result of geographical dispersion and of differences in cultural background and in world outlook. Jews the world over should renew their historic covenant, binding themselves into one transnational people with the Jewish community in Israel as its core, henceforth to be known as Zion. This was, you know, before there was an Israel as a country, Israel, but there was always Israel as Israel, never went away. Zion, the idea of Israel, there were always Jews there throughout history. We were just not a lot of us. Uh, Eretz Israel, the spiritual home. He was a big Zionist in the sense of understanding Israel as the sense, spiritual center of Jewish life. There used to be, I don't have it here, Reconstruction used to have a logo. Um, I wonder where it is. It used to be a logo that Kaplan, of course, invented. I wonder if it's in here somewhere. That was a wheel and with spokes going out, and the spokes were like the diaspora Jewish communities and and uh, and ideas and things like that. Where is it? Oh, here's one. One version of a wheel. It says, the, the center, little center here says Zion. The center is Israel. Zion. And then this says, one spoke says ethics, one spoke says religion, and one spoke says culture. Interesting to think of how he thought. Religion, ethics, culture, and then outside says Diaspora Jewry Organic Communities. That was his little, his schematic of how he saw Judaism with Zion at the center. We were, you know, Eretz Israel, the, the promised land. 
That was, that's been our spiritual center that we pray about. Hashanah Haba'ah Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem ends traditionally every Passover Seder. We always spoke about Jerusalem as the center of Jewish spiritual life. And Kaplan was a big proponent enough that he moved there. As I said, he made Aliyah at one point. So Eretz Israel should be recognized as the home of the historic Jewish civilization, but he also recognized the diaspora Jewish communities were authentic Jewish communities. That Israel wasn't the only authentic Jewish community. Diaspora communities were also authentic, but Israel was the center. You know, and we could have, as we did, because he was a rationalist, and looked around the world and went, oh look, Jews are everywhere. We have our own organic communities all over the world. Um, but look how few we are. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, what are there, 15,000 million Jews or 16 million Jews or 17 million Jews or 14 million Jews. It depends who gets counted as a Jew. But something like that, not more than that, you know, if the Holocaust hadn't happened, we'd have 20 million more Jews than we have right, more than we have right now. Which is still bupkis in the world. Right. <laughs> we'd have 20 million more. And we only have 15, let's say. So... Imagine the impact, and look how loud and noisy we are now with just the 15 million we got, and look at the impact we have on the world with just what we've got. We would have 20 million more out there doing who knows what amazing things. And even so, right, how many Catholics are there in the world? A billion? How many Muslims are there? A billion and a half? You know, how many Christians are there? More than a billion, because there's a billion Catholics alone, right? You know, so, and we're like, there's 10 of us running around making a lot of noise. You know, even though most people think we're one-third of the country because um, of our great PR coup, <laughs> Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. That was our big PR coup. We taught the world thinking that we had Protestants, Catholics, and Jews in America, and so therefore we must be one-third of the world. But, you know, we're this little embattled community. That's the reality. We still are a little embattled community. Um, but we are an embattled family community, and it's, that's the difference from other communities, that we are, it's like relatives, and, and so we react differently. You know, when, I assume when a Baptist church gets bombed in the South, other Baptist churches send them stuff to support them. I assume that. Uh, and that people in general, you know, support them. Uh, when synagogues get attacked, people react on a visceral level that, you know, that could be me. That's my family. That's me over there. You know, um, and uh, as, of course, all of our kids who go to school are now feeling in every school. Now, my mother, uh, I was talking to my mother yesterday, and we were bemoaning the fact that every child in every school now has active shooter drills in every school and that they're making backpacks with uh, things you can slip in that are bullet resistant resistant now you can buy online bulletproof backpacks Um, it's like perverse and so my mother said yeah honey and you remember when you were going to school and there was uh, tuck and roll under the car because there was going to be 
Because the Russians were going to the Russians were going to bomb us with an atomic bomb, and every school had drills of what to do when you were a kid. Take you, you duck and cover under your desk because, of course, that would stop the atomic bomb from landing on you. Ah, and I remember my I, when I was a kid, we lived on Harvard Street, about five houses up from Wilshire. And I remember my father worked downtown, and I remember. I mean, how old was I? Eight, maybe? I don't know. When I was a kid, I remember my father taking me over outside, down the street, near where Wilshire was, where there was the opening to the sewer, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the street, and saying, because we didn't have a bomb shelter, saying, so if there's an air raid, if a bomb... He, you're supposed to go... I was supposed to go take my mother and my sisters who, of course, would be home with me somehow, and get them down there and then not let anybody else in. Oh, my goodness. Seriously? (laughs) And I remember that for a while there was some moment of time when my parents were thinking of moving to Malibu. Uh, They didn't, ultimately, because the freeway wasn't even existent then, and my father realized he would never see his family because he worked downtown. He'd leave before it was light and he'd come home after it was dark and he'd never see anybody so we never moved there but I remember when they were looking because I went with them some of the time the biggest selling point of those houses were the ones that had bomb shelters in the backyard that was like a big sale go down and look at the bomb shelter and all that I remember that era very clearly you know and we laugh about this but in Israel it's life in Israel every day look those bombs that were just going off Everybody, how close is the bomb shelter? Everybody's got a bomb shelter. Everybody's been in a bomb shelter. Let me just tell you, we were just in the movies, and every time I'm like, where are the exits? Right. Yeah, you know, so, you know, we, we, we mostly laugh about it and don't think about that all of us live with PTSD. You know, it's not really, it's not really P. It's not, that's the problem. It's not really post Traumatic stress disorder. It's traumatic stress disorder. We all live with, you know, TSD, all of us. And we all are living with trauma. And, and our kids are all, every age, are living with trauma. And, you know, and we probably need to address that more in terms of our own mental health and what, you know, what sets us off in, in our bodies and in our psyches and in our minds. Um, but, and for Kaplan... Amazing segue, but and for for Kaplan, the the answer to this to all of this is this: the answer to all of this is community. That community is the source of strength, of comfort, of of connection, of safety, of refuge, of inspiration. The community, um, and that the more we can focus on community. Um, and the more we take advantage of community and relate to community, the healthier we will be, spiritually, emotionally, communally. You know, someone asked me why I put my name on the Mishaberach list. Because I put my name this week on the Mishaberach list. Okay, so, which I wasn't doing. I have, I'm, you know, dealing with prostate cancer. It's like, I was told 80% of all males who are 80 have prostate cancer. I got 10 more years to go for that, but even so. So I'm doing press again. So uh, at first I like, didn't want to tell anybody. It was like, whatever. And then I realized, what am I talking about? I spent my life preaching community, you know? 
What's wrong with me? So I started telling everybody, like I just did now. So I started telling everybody about it. Ah, you know, people hug me, people touch me, people give me, I'm thinking of my prayers. Yeah, that's what it's about. That is what community is about. So, you know, practice what I preach, which is what I'm doing. Uh, you know, and that's the point. And so for Campbell, this wasn't just an intellectual exercise. This was the very life of the Jewish community, its survival into the future. Because he knew, like we we're just talking about, you know, there's 10 of us in the world. Are there 8 billion yet? We got, what, 7 and something billion out there in the world or whatever number it is. And there's a few million of us? I mean, think about it. It's like, hello, we, nobody should even, should even know we exist in the, in the world. We're so small. We're such a teeny little percentage of the world's population. And here we are. And without here we are, without people connecting, without our kids feeling a sense of connection, that's why people worry about interfaith marriage and all that. You know, interfaith marriage is also a great opportunity. Uh, Optima Health Institute down in San Diego refers to all illnesses as health opportunities. <laughs> this is my health opportunity. Which, you know, and intermarriage is like the health, spiritual opportunity and communal opportunity of the Jewish people. Uh, most of the weddings I do are interfaith marriages, and many of them are from interfaith marriages, and here they are, and I'm there. And they're connected one way or another to the greater Jewish community. You know, and we need to be a place that welcomes that, that encourages that, that's connected to that, right? Because otherwise we are going to disappear. And I don't worry about us disappearing. You know, I used to have arguments with other rabbis all the time because I've always done interfaith marriages for 43 years now. And most rabbis still won't, I think. Um, but to me, you know, because they're worried about the survival of the Jewish people. My attitude is, if it's meant to survive, it'll survive. If the Judaism provide something of value to people, they'll keep feeling connected to it. If it doesn't, then why should it survive? Things survive because they matter to somebody. And I believe we matter. And I believe what we teach matters. And I believe what we are matters. Now we act matters. And that our kids will experience that if we allow them to live that. Yes, they'll still marry whoever they marry. How can they not? We're 2% of the population of the United States, basically, a little less now, I think. Let's say we're 2%. That means 98% of the people they meet are not Jewish. You know, what's the chances that they're going to marry somebody Jewish? Well, 98% against 2% is the answer, is the percentages. It's not very good percentages if that's what you really care about a lot. Better than worrying about that, because you can't worry, control what your kids do anyway, or who they marry, is to create the kind of environment that's attractive. That someone would want to go, well, let's go hang out there because that's welcoming, non-judgmental, inspiring, and moving, and inspirational. That's what it's about. That's what I've always tried to do. I think that's what KI does. I think that's why people feel comfortable here from all kinds of different religious backgrounds because we aren't judgmental about, well, you've got to be this, you've got to be that. You know, as the rabbinics checking their tzitzits or something, I used to say, in the Orthodox world, to see that they're kosher or whatever. You know, we don't do that. It's not who we are. It's never been who we are, at least since I've been here. I've been here a long time. Um, <laughs> 33 years. Anyway, so... Uh, and, and that was really what all of this is about. And that's what my brilliant book is about. It's about sharing Kaplanian ideas. It's like here, I did... Oh, I'm going to make reference to this. I, we have to end. Chai Sarah, this is this week's Torah portion. So you can take it if you don't have the book. If you have the book, you can just look it up. 
you know, and I picked uh, Abraham breathed his last dying in a good ripe age, old and contented, gathered to his kin, because it's one of the great lines of the Torah, is how they describe the end, the death of Abraham. That he breathed his last dying at a good ripe age, like a good old age. What's a good old age? As opposed to a bad old age. You know, he died at a good old age, they said. Old and contented. And then he was gathered to his kin. Very few references in the Torah to the afterlife. But they're all, the few that there are, are this. That is, being gathered to your kin. Going somewhere, connecting to those who went before you. As if wherever it is and whatever it is, we're going to connect with those who went before us. You know, somewhere, wherever it might be. And that uh, a good ripe age means a life filled that's good. It's a good ripe old age if at the end of your life you can look back at your life with satisfaction of the relationships you've had and the people you've known and the things you've done. That's the idea. The idea is for me as a teacher to try to inspire 10th graders or 11th graders or 12th graders to start writing their own eulogy when they're 10th and 11th and 12th grade. What do you want people to say about you when it comes to the end? 100 years from now, you know? What kind of person do you want them to think you were and see you as? Because you become what you think about. So, you know, if you create a vision of that's who you're going to be, then you'll start acting to be that rather than just whoever you fall into or whoever your neighbor happens to be or whoever your roommate happens to be in college. There was this tragic death this last uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, of this uh, boy at USC, right, Um, who overdosed, basically, uh, drug overdose. And uh, we had a grief haven, uh, Susan Whitmore runs grief haven, and and I were um, here a couple days ago with 16 of his friends, one girl and all boys. So you have his friends uh, in the chapel as a grief group, basically talking about they were all here for the funeral. Uh, some of them go to college there, some go, they go all over the country. And talking about him and talking about this, this experience and, you know, and their frustrations and their angers and their guilt feelings and they all felt guilty because they all knew he was doing drugs to excess and they all talked about the drugs they do. All of them. You know, and all the drugs that are available in their dorm and all the drugs that are available all over. Well, if you only do a couple of lines of this and this and take that, it's like, we're going, yeah, right. But he was, you know, and then he would go to his room and then he would do all kinds of other things. And we knew he was doing things, but, you know, we figured, who am I to step to, you know, to do anything? You know, who am I? Now they all feel guilty because they, quote, didn't do anything when they saw their friend using drugs to excess and mixing all kinds of drugs and, you know, killing himself. Um, And they said, well, you know what? The problem was he had roommates who were drug dealers. His roommates were... They're going to USC. They're going to USC. Yes, they're going to USC. His, His, you know, his roommates were really into drugs and they were like... They were drug dealers. They were selling drugs and doing whatever. So, but he was gonna. We were. We, we didn't worry about it because next semester he was moving out. He was gonna be in a different room with better, people that weren't drug dealers. That were you didn't have so many drugs so easily accessible. So we figured it'd be better then. So you don't want your life to be determined by who your roommate is, and and your behavior by who you who you happen to. St- 
straw you draw in college at your dormitory, you want to be conscious and you want to be intentional about your life. Well, that's what this stuff is about. And that's what Torah study is about. And that's what Jewish community is about. And that was what Kaplan was about, was, was cr- articulating a Judaism that could be intentional, where, where you're, the, you made choices, whatever they were on the whole spectrum, from not doing anything to acting like an Orthodox Jew. You know, you can act like an Orthodox Jew all you want. It's, their, that's, it, it's your rituals. You know, if you're Jewish, all of Judaism belongs to you. It's like a Jewish inheritance room. You have a key. You go down, everything Jewish for the last four or 5,000 years is yours. The languages, the books, the literature, the music, it's all yours. The rituals, the keep out, the everything. You can use them or not use them. They're yours. You can put them on and try them for a while and go, that was fun, but now I'm not interested anymore. Or you can never look at them. But it belongs to you. It's like you literally inherited it from great, 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 100 generations ago, <laughs> grandparents or something. That's how I see Judaism. That's how I try to teach it. Sure, go play. Go down in the room. Try things on. And if, in, that's a modern Reconstructionist understanding that's very radically different than we got the yoke of the commandments because God commanded you to do these 613 commandments and without amending. So I want to thank you all for coming to this lovely series. I had no idea what I was going to do tonight. I brought all these things and didn't do any of them. But that's the way I am. And you showed up anyway. Anyway.